The Gist is sponsored by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. Right now, get $50 towards any mattress by visiting casper.com gist and using the promo code gist. It's Wednesday, August 5th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Dayline San Francisco, three-story tall lamppost collapses onto occupied car. Y- y- you know what? Let's let KTVU Channel 2 tell the tale. That incident is drawing attention to what some say is a long-time problem. Lamppost bases aged and corroded all over the city. KTVU's Tara Moriarty with more now on the issue and what city officials say is to blame. Okay, this was an appropriate story for local news. You've got scary, wait, my lamppost could be next. You've got the visual, it's the car with the smashed in hood. And you got the lamppost laying there like, oh my God, what happened, dude? But we're 21 seconds in and they didn't say why the lamppost collapsed. What substance corroded it? It was the answer to this very question that hooked me, non-lamppost enthusiast, and I'm on the opposite side of the continent. Of course, I was exposed to the story via print and Twitter, and when it comes to conveying the story in a broadcast format, as Tara Moriarty reports, you're gonna see some differences. Without warning, a lamppost three stories high snapped at the base, toppling- All right, I'm not gonna play the whole report, but here's what you're getting. Scared onlookers, shots of the car, things to look at, things to be frightened of, all good local news story. But we're a minute and a half in, and they already quoted an expert citing corrosion, but Tara Moriarty cannot quite bring herself to say, what was it that caused the corrosion? So she quotes a guy. It looks like a perfect spot for dogs to hang out, and I'm thinking over the time the, uh... The urine just caused it to erode, and boom, it just came toppling over. Urine, Tara, urine. Tara could not even say urine. Urine could not come out of Tara's mouth. It had to be put in the mouth of a concerned citizen. But that's what the headline was that I saw. Three-story tall lamppost collapses onto occupied car. Urine to blame. Urine and the onlooker was the only one who said it. You know, urine is the Islamic extremism of this story. If you can't name it, you can't blame it. And that is a problem. So is this. Over the past two years, three city light poles have fallen for virtually no reason. No, not no reason. Urine. It was because of urine. I got an inkling. It was due to tinkling. But here's the good news, the golden lining, if you will. Fire hydrants, iconic fire hydrants, are made of cast iron, and they won't topple if Buddy does his business there. By the way, I say Buddy, not Rover or Fido, because there are no dogs named Rover or Fido. That is the plain speak I give to you here on The Gist, the plain speak when it comes to dog names or the uncomfortable but necessary conversations about urine-soaked infrastructure that you and your family won't want to miss. On the show today, I spiel about how American politics changes via realigning elections and inflection points, and I conclude that's usually a whole lot of nonsense. But first, here's Adam Davidson. He's here to discuss the, turns out, less than earth-shattering repercussions of an event that they told us was going to change everything a mere four years ago. I love a good anniversary. Now, to be honest, the four-year anniversary of something isn't really a good one, but I'm going to call it a good one because four years ago today, this 
happened. It was the downgrading of the USA's rating, our debt rating, by Standard & Poor's. We went from AAA, outstanding, to AA+, AA+, excellent. And you would have thought that a downgrade to excellent pretty much meant collapse was nigh. Wall Street ended its worst week since November 2008 when it closed on Friday. Across Asia, a stock market nosedive. Thursday's 500-point drop, Friday's wild ride. This could uh, have serious consequences for the world economy. The downgrade could boost borrowing costs by $100 billion. So, so Kelly, our, our, our credit rating is now below that of Liechtenstein's. <laughs> it's an unprecedented reversal of fortune for the world's largest economy. Now, I remember, personally, I remember I happened to be at the home of a very wealthy person. And he was talking to a friend of his, who almost by definition will have to be, if you know how America works, another very wealthy person. And they were talking about this day, this downgrading of the rating as being a watershed, as being something that we will remember for generations. And I remember thinking, it was sort of like the death of an actor who you didn't realize was alive. Like, I didn't, I figured we had the highest credit rating. I didn't know what it was, but I, all these serious people were saying what a terrible thing was happening. Now, one such serious person, who I don't think was saying that at the time, but was certainly paying attention, was Adam Davidson. He was doing it in his capacity as the founding editor of Planet Money, has since become a New York Times Magazine writer on economics issue. We're going to look back. We're going to look back to the debt rating. Hello, Adam. Hey, Mike. So I will set the scene now. Right now, there are a number of countries with that highest of high debt ratings. I think there's about, I don't know, 12 of them. They're the countries you'd expect. Australia, Canada, Denmark, Germany, Hong Kong, Liechtenstein. Actually, I didn't expect Liechtenstein. Didn't really have an opinion one way or another. Luxembourg, Norway, Singapore, Sweden, Switzerland, and the UK. And joining the United States with this only excellent debt rating are countries like Belgium, France, the entire European Union, Austria, etc. At the time, Adam, what did you think about this downgrade in the debt rating? I did not think it was a big deal at the time. It reminded me a bit. Remember when The Sopranos never won an Emmy? There was like years yeah. and years where yeah, all these other yeah, shows yeah. were winning Emmys and The Sopranos wasn't winning an Emmy. And some friend of mine was getting all upset. And I was like, this isn't bad for The Sopranos. This is bad for the Emmys. This is yeah. a sign of what an out-of-touch, irrelevant you know, nonsense award the Emmys are. Oh, my God. This is the analogy of the year. I love it. Yes, exactly. So one of the biggest puzzles of this financial crisis is that Standard & Poor's and Moody's and Fitch, the three major credit rating Mm -hmm. agencies, exist at all, are listened to at all, have any credibility or any discussion at all. So Standard & Poor's rating the United States, it kind of should be the other way around. And the United States actually does regulate Standard & Poor's, should probably say, based on their experience and their job that they did with the housing bubble, you're uncertified, sirs. Absolutely. And just to make clear, during the financial bubble that led to the crisis, there are all these financial products being created. And Standard Poor's, Moody's, and Fitch are making a fortune rating these things. And it's not like, oh, now we know, looking back, if only they had 2020 hindsight, they should have. They were, I mean, I think there's technical meanings to the word corrupt, so I don't want to use corrupt, but they were taking large sums of money from banks 
to rate the bonds that those banks were creating right. and rating them absurdly. However you define that. And maybe The Sopranos has a word for it, too, going back to them. But yes. yeah, exactly. And so it's not just, oh, they didn't have the best judgment at one time in history. It's that their fundamental way of working was outrageous and irrelevant. And and so anyway, so that is a huge puzzle. Why Why did we listen to them why do we listen to them ever? We still listen to them all the time. If you go to your pension fund and say, or your 401k and say, what kind of bonds do you buy? They'll say, oh, we buy AAA rated bonds. Well, that means we listen to Standard Poor's, blah, 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 blah. So, so that's one dimension that made me not think too much about this. The other thing is the particular version of this downgrade. People call it a shot against across the bow. It was basically telling Congress hey, if you guys keep the shenanigans of right. every few months, decide, you know, having a vote about whether or not you're going to pay debt, eventually that's going to be bad. And right, because what, what occasioned this particular downgrade, and we should say that Fitch never changed his ratings, but Moody's and Standard & Poor's did, was one of those up-to-the-precipice debt ceiling debates where I guess the two credit ratings agencies were essentially saying, this is nonsense. You know, you guys aren't behaving like a AAA company. Right. And so... We should make clear, the U.S. government will never have to default on any of its bonds. However, it does seem that it's not unreasonable that the U.S. government will choose not to pay its bonds. So that was what this downgrade was about, which, you know, so in that sense, I was glad it happened, I guess, because I'm sort of on the side of the U.S. government paying its debts. <laughs> controversial. <laughs> yeah. But I didn't really take very seriously the idea that Congress would vote not to raise the debt ceiling. So I didn't, the warning they gave, I felt like the warning had already been sent. And let me also say that there's a political dimension to this, though, even though it, if anything, it was a rebuke to senators like Ted Cruz and those who brought us to the precipice, it was being spun as another piece of evidence that the Obama presidency had led to general United States declinism. The people on CNBC most talking about it, like, look what happened under Obama. Look what happened on well, his that watch. That is outrageous. I mean, this yeah. was clearly well, a it was handful 2011 of and before yeah. the election. I, I always like with bonds to do some like bond 101 because okay. I feel like bonds can be very confusing. Yes. You know, a bond is a form of debt. It's like an IOU. It is how governments and large corporations borrow money rather than saying, hey, can you lend me a billion dollars? They sell or issue a billion dollars in bonds. And Bonds are rated by rating agencies and some institutions like insurance companies, pension funds and others by law have to buy very safe bonds. And what that has come to mean is one of the three, they call them nationally recognized credit organizations, I think, mm -hmm. NRCOs, Moody's, Fitch and Standard & Poor's have to give it a high rating. They call it investment grade rating. And so... It's a very weird thing where you have these three companies that are private companies, for-profit companies, that are given basically regulatory authority by the government but have no regulation themselves. Those three companies say, hey, we're like a movie critic. Like, yeah. we like that bond. If you don't like it, that's all right. That's just our opinion. So you can't sue us just like you can't sue A.O. Scott or whatever. So they have this incredibly powerful role in the world where they can really determine how trillions of dollars will change hands by law. I mean, the U.S. government is giving them a monopoly power or an oligopoly power, since there's three of them, over this crucial thing, which ratings are investment grade. Yet there is no consequence for them being terrible at yeah. their jobs and being fundamentally, you know, some people might use the word corrupt. So what I see as 
this anniversary today. It is not the anniversary of the day the world ended and the U.S. became a pariah state. Merely excellent slash pariah state. Yeah, yeah. But it is a good anniversary to say we had a financial system in place. We had this global modern financial system in place. It was built around 1944, 1945, 1946. It was consciously built. Yeah. It's not just what arose. Yes. Pre-planned at a conference and a number of conferences, but people point to Bretton Woods Woods. in New Hampshire, where John Maynard Keynes was the famous guy there and, you know, the famous economist who who led much of this, although he lost some key battles. And, you know, the way I would describe it is World War One, World War Two. We have the emergence of these modern industrial states, but they're still going to war over really stupid, medieval, crazy racism and nationalism and all this stuff. And there's this idea, hey, if we create a modern financial system where money flows not based on prejudice, not based on, you know, which king is cousins with which other king or who killed who a thousand years ago, but based on simple financial sense that it will be a safer, more productive, richer, less war-prone world. And I would say... It did great for a long time, 1945 to, let's say, 2007, for countries that were in that global system, which is basically... Well, it basically helped Europe, but those were the ones who were riven by World War I and II. And so Europe decided, you know, the Far East also signed on. It helped Japan, us. You know, America, I think, is far richer because of this global system. And the idea of bonds as an instrument that trades hands and flows around the world, that was central to it, that that people get money for projects. If you want to build a bridge or you want to start a hospital or you, you want to expand your university, it's not just because you're cousins with the governor. It's mm-hmm. not just because you killed a whole bunch of people. It's because you have a better plan than someone else. So when I think about the big picture of the financial crisis, it focused attention on a whole bunch of unanswered questions at the base of that global financial system. The financial system. crisis of 2008 of Lehman Brothers. Exactly, and, yeah. which led to the downgrading mm-hmm. of U.S. debt right. and led to the Greece crisis and led to the Euro crisis, all of those things. And I would say that there's a whole bunch of implicit questions that we just never got to. We just sort of assumed okay, that financial system, it'll be built on trust and we'll build trust over time. But I don't know that anybody, certainly including me, had really thought through, well, wait, where? what are the nodes of trust? Like, what, what are the specific ways in which trust is shared? Because it turns out trust is crucial to a global financial system that eliminates ancient prejudice and blah, blah, blah. So it turns out that these three private companies were crucial sources of trust. In fact, the whole housing crisis, in a sense, was playing around with their ratings. That was the fundamental act that the investment banks did that brought about the financial crisis. So what comes next? What is the new architecture of global trust? Well, is anyone putting forward? I've heard Germany telling Greece to pay back their debt. I haven't heard anyone saying we need to reform this and replace it with what? I think that what we replace it with is and I hope this is not the case, but this is what I think. I think it the world that that we're going to see like little islands of trust with right. kind of concentric circles around major powers that use their power to impose trust. So I think we now see that Europe was not unified Europe. Europe was what Germany wants yeah. to a lesser extent what France wants. So we now know, okay, Europe's trust system was built around 
basically Germany. We know Southeast Asia is built around China, and we see the Southeast Asian countries pegging their currency to China, is determining their policy based on China. I think that will increase. Japan's role, while still important, will diminish. I think the U.S., you know, there's this big play with Chavez when he was alive, with Lula when he was alive in Brazil, to try and see, like, who gets South America. I think South America is very much in play. The U.S. is still the biggest player globally, but we're increasingly a regional player. I think the Trans-Pacific Partnership is a huge attempt to make the U.S.'s sphere of influence span the Pacific. But the reason I think this is a worse world is because it's going back a notch to a world of power, raw power, rather than financial logic or sense. And that means capital flows, you know, and I I think this is a, I don't think like tomorrow we're we're going to have Hitler rise and we're going to have like some, you know, huge Chinese. Well, you're painting a picture of more winners and losers. The idea of the European Union, maybe it was naive and not done right, but it was also optimistic. And you're painting a picture where instead of saying, yes, we'll suck in the Spanish and we'll help the Greeks, Germany will just say, we're going to deal with Scandinavia, maybe not Finland, and we're going to deal with just the known players. And so the rich will get richer under what you think, and you're not happy about it, but what you're saying will Yeah, I think the rich get richer. I think the poor, I mean, I do think- Meaning no one will get credit, meaning it'll be harder for, you know, South American countries on the come who might be in the old system have showed that they're doing everything right under the new system. You know, the banking interests of the Western world will just say not good enough and not give them financing for their dams. The global capitalist economy that works the best, that grows the fastest, that is the fairest, is one where a really smart, Malaysian businessman with a better idea can borrow money and and who's responsible and and handles his books well can borrow money, get investors more easily and more cheaply than a Chinese businessman with a really bad idea. Right. Or if China is trying to play Malaysia off of Indonesia, then an Indonesian businessman with a bad idea. And obviously that has never been fully true. We've never lived in a like worldwide meritocracy, but I think it felt from let's say 1946 to 2007, like we were moving towards that, that every year or every decade anyway, we were closer to a global meritocracy. And I'd say not only are we moving away from a global meritocracy, not rapidly. I think we're talking about this is a generational, like this is, you know, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years to for all the things I'm talking about to play out. And there's yeah. some fundamental questions that need to be answered or else we're going to this world I'm describing. Well, what you've done is inspired me inspired me to come up with a series of jokes. I'm not quite sure of the punchline, but they go something like this. What do you call an Indonesian businessman with an excellent head for business? What? A Chinese entrepreneur. Is that good? Is that a no, good joke? Okay, how about this not one? not a good one. How no. about this one? What do you call a Qatari businessman with an excellent head for business? What? A Clinton Foundation donor. Is that any good? I mean, that sort of gets at it. Okay. Yeah, I don't. What, I didn't laugh. I don't what, think anyone laughed. No. What do you say a, to a Kazakh businessman with an excellent head for business? What? Cut through the park and take the FDR drive south. Because he moved to America. <laughs> he moved to America and yeah. he's driving a cab. I don't know. Yeah. Those aren't yeah. good ideas. Those yeah. are terrible ideas. Terrible ideas. I did have a cab driver the other day, a young woman who was telling me that she runs her father's textile factory in Bangladesh out of her cab. That's awesome. Well, we are going to upgrade your rating from spiffy to keen. Thank you, Adam Davidson, founder of NPR's Planet Money. He writes about these issues. 
but in print for the New York Times Magazine. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Mike. Casper, it's an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Now, it's a little misleading. Here's a fraction, three over two. That means 50% more. No, Casper's a lot less. Let's go right to cost. Mattresses, they could cost $1,500. I've spent more than that on a mattress. A Casper mattress, let's talk about the twin size, 500 bucks. 600 for a twin XL, 750 for a full size, 850 for a queen, 950 for a king. Compared to other mattresses, a lot cheaper. Wait, what about quality? Casper combines premium latex foam with memory foam. It's a great feeling mattress. And here's the thing you don't have to take my word for it, it's completely risk free. It delivers the mattress for free and it allows for a hundred day return policy. I'd go to 99. You never know what's going to come up on that hundredth day. Free delivery, painless returns. They're made in America. Again, you've heard those prices. It's just an amazing deal on a mattress where almost nothing can go wrong. Because if it does go wrong, say, hey, Casper, take your mattress back. But I bet you won't. And I bet you like the price. And I bet you like the sleep. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash gist and inserting the promo code gist. Terms and conditions apply. And now the spiel. I'm a party pooper. Tomorrow is the GOP debate. Well, it's the first really big official event of the campaign season. And by season, I mean a season that will last six seasons, summer 2015, fall 2015, and all four seasons of 2016. Now, two days ago, all of these candidates saved Donald Trump. And no, you can't save Donald Trump. We're at a forum in New Hampshire where there was something that looked a lot like a debate. It was rapid fire questions from local radio host Jack Heath. Here he is questioning Jeb Bush. Uh, I differ than my sister greatly on politics. Um, you have a brother who's pretty well known and a dad, a father who was president. Do you feel that when you're talking with voters, you have to differentiate yourself philosophically from uh, the former presidents? No, people get this. I mean, just by your point, you know, if you around a kitchen table, your sister doesn't agree with you on things. And so I have a different view than my, than my, my brother. My dad is probably the most perfect man alive, so it's very hard for me to be critical of him. In fact, I got a T-shirt that says... Uh, at the Jeb Swag Store that says, I'm the, um, I'm, I'm the, uh, my dad's the greatest man alive. If you, if you don't like it, I'll take you outside. Wait, Jeb, can you give that URL again so I know where to go so I can order a highly bellicose t-shirt that doesn't seem at all clever or applicable to people not you? But that was, that New Hampshire thing, that was a forum. So why are we making this big deal about this Fox forum? It can't just be the presence of Trump. It's basically because everyone decided that this forum would be important for 10 candidates to get an average of seven minutes of talk time. And because we decided that it will be important, it will be important. And by important, I mean something that we talk about and dissect. And afterwards, when one of these candidates who wasn't on the stage eventually drops out or comes in 19th in the voting, we're going to say, you know, not being on that stage back in August really hurt him. I'd say not being at all popular at any time was a pretty good indication that they weren't going to get the popular vote. Or put another way, the failure to have people tell a pollster that I'd vote for that guy will turn out to be highly correlative to people not actually voting for that guy.
It's what in polling we call the snowball effect, meaning a guy without a snowball's chance in hell will wind up losing the precincts of hell, inner city hell, the exurban hell ring, the key I-35 corridor of hell, and both incubi and succubi ages 18 to 34, whose number one complaint is he doesn't understand demons like me. In fact, so often in politics, we suffer from the post hoc ergo prompter hoc fallacy, which means the teleprompter was hocked, ergo the candidate sounded foolish. No, it means after this, therefore, because of this. It works like this. Someone's got to win an election, right? Even elections that come down to chads. And when someone wins, we come up with the reasons he, always up to this point, he won. And the reasons are usually complex. Sometimes they're fundamental. Sometimes they're demographic. Sometimes they're zeitgeisty. And it's not like these things aren't true, but it's just that it seems to me that the truer thing is the voters just like that guy more than the other guy. And I do mean liked. I often mean liked. In my life, every single general election has gone to the more likable candidate. I know you're going to say, George Bush, he's not likable. Yeah, on the have a beer with metric, you're going to say, George Bush, he didn't drink beer. But you know what I'm saying. Compared to Gore or Kerry, Bush seemed like the more likable guy. It's a stupid metric, I know, but it's always been true. All right, maybe it wasn't true with McGovern and Nixon, but I was less than one year old at the time. And also, maybe it was true. Likeability seems to trump in the general election. Will it trump Trump? Who's to say? But there's another phenomenon that's related to this trend, and I'm guilty of it too. So I have Raihan Salam on here, and we talk about what's the direction of the party. We mentioned that, you know, Goldwater, he set conservatism in motion. And then we talk about the culture wars and how they're waxing or waning, or the party, either party, both parties, true of both parties, they have a brand, they have an identity. Will the identity capture voters? Will voters' wants and needs be met in the moment by the party? I was reading in the Wall Street journal, this guy, Peter Berkowitz, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, and he wrote this article, The Right Way Forward for Conservatism. It was one of these arguments about the big changes and how Republicans have to rebrand themselves and what messages they have to glom onto. And he writes things like, conservative political prospects depend on the capacity favored by our constitutional system to harmonize people with the claims of democratic sentiment. Oh, yeah. And he writes, Conservatives should forthrightly reaffirm their commitment to the Constitution's principles of individual freedom, equality under the law, and limited government, all of which presuppose and protect religious faith and traditional morality. Oh, yeah. You know, I read stuff like this all the time. And do you know what it is? It's almost all nonsense. Some of the stuff may be true at the margins. But here's the thing. We have two parties, and because by now they're pretty well ideologically sorted, you got your conservatives, they're the Republicans, and you got your liberals, they're the Democrats. Those are the brands, and the public will, in an election, pretty much say, I'm going to go conservative or I'm going to go liberal. The parties are dichotomous. One is stern, one is forgiving, one is tough, one is tender. One's the mommy party, one's the daddy party. One's more about diplomacy, one's more about war, one's more nationalistic, the other's more open. Listen, of course, they're generalizations. And sure, every Democrat says, you know, I don't believe in a handout, I believe in a hand up. And every Republican says, I'm not pro-war, I just believe in a strong defense. But if I'm so off base in these generalizations, how come when I listed the either-ors, you knew exactly which party I meant every time. 
In an ideologically well-sorted two-party system, the parties stand for different things, and the people will generally be in the mood for one of the parties or the other party. We can, nay, we will, spend a couple billion dollars trying to convince those few people in the middle otherwise, but we know who the candidates are, what they represent, what they stand for, and we know that the agendas they lay out over the next 430 days aren't going to deviate much from what we know about what liberal Democrats generally think and what conservative Republicans generally think. And let me make this clear. I'm not complaining. The debate should be fun. Democracy will be served. And plus, this specific debate will have Donald Trump. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is sitting vigil for Buffalo Chip weakened parking meters. Joel Meyer's big issue, cat turd infested library drop boxes. Andy Bauer's executive producer. He's all about owl pellets and their deleterious effect on no U-turn signs. The gist, one small part of our 2015 salary was derived from humorously pairing animal bodily fluids with signage. We stand by that. Thanks for listening.